Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. On today's podcast, we have Jessica Chaplow, who is a specialist in digital transformation, but she focuses on the role of cutting-edge technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain and augmented reality. In 2019, she was a finalist for Women in IT's Young Leader of the Year Award and was previously head of digital transformation at Mediacom and has now moved to a new role at Havis Media. Alongside her day job, though, she set up her own platform called Artificial Intelligence, which was born with a mission to raise awareness and drive education around AI. Jessica is passionate about ethical data use and reducing algorithmical biases, and her platform is designed to empower people to focus less on finding the right answer and instead to educate them to ask the right questions when it comes to AI ethics. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on actually was because I'm really conscious that a lot of the people that we've spoken to over the course of doing this have been either activists or entrepreneurs or people who are pirate in the sense that they've gone off and created a new project or a campaign or something. And they're very much able to challenge from the outside, which has its problems, but can obviously you have a lot more freedom there to sort of challenge norms. Whereas I think it's harder to do it on the inside of a big company or within an institutional setting. I think most people would agree. And that's why we've got so many pirates within the network who almost feel more of a need for it because they're in a big company. I think it's really important that we are always talking to people who are trying to disrupt or break the mold or responsible for kind of innovation inside out and to gain some insight about how you do that and and what the challenges are and whether it's working or not for you. So that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to get you on. And one of your, it was one of your former colleagues who introduced us and said, you know, this is the pirate from my previous company. You should definitely talk to her. She's really got that attitude and mindset. So how did you get into your field? And what is your approach to working with kind of all these new and emerging technologies? And do you even see yourself as somebody who challenges? Like, is that what you do? I really wish that I had really well thought out 
perfectly crafted plan that got me to where I am currently. For the most part, it was definitely just a domino effect of a few really fortunate events, really. More specifically, I think if I throw it right back to the first ever interview that I took, I think back then it was quite rare in the advertising industry to specialize from the get-go. You're usually encouraged to generalize and do a grad rotation maybe, and then go into your field of digital specialism, etc. And just from the bat, I knew that I wanted to just go straight into e-commerce. Not really because I knew I'd be any good at it. It was actually because it was a newly created role at the time. And I love that idea of crafting something from scratch with people that obviously were really familiar with the industry, but also just myself knowing that I had the freedom to not be a slave to the job description, which is something that I'm really against in the corporate world, um, which is difficult to navigate because every job has those parameters that you have to, you know, check off those KPIs. And for the most part, those are helpful, but they also are massively inhibitive. So essentially that got me into like the specialism. And then I think from there, there was that really interesting opportunity for me to almost hyper-specialize. Once I'd already started the specialism of e-commerce, I then kind of delved deeper into the fact that that was a digital area that was fast becoming everything. Like there's so much interconnectedness between how we use technology, shop online as consumers and also as a technologist. It's all converging constantly. And then that kind of exposed me to the areas of like artificial intelligence, where I got introduced to IBM at the time and sat with a few of their engineers and not their sales team. And I'm a massive advocate in the advertising industry of towing the line between being what I call engineer versus marketeer. I think there is a massive tension between those two worlds and that tightrope, if you can walk it, is a fascinating place to be in because it's at the nexus of things where you understand commerciality of marketing, how to tell a great story. But actually, once you talk about technology, the conversation is a little bit harder to navigate, whereas the technologist can tell everything under the hood and the technicalities really well. But when it comes to kind of making that sound a little bit more exciting and engaging for clients or for non-technologists and specialists, it's a harder challenge for them. So that for me was basically what I wanted to carve out with my career and and how I then just mainly enthusiasm over aptitude throughout all of that. And then eventually the other part caught up and it worked out from there. What did you pick up along the way on that, Jess? Because it sounds like a very good strategy there to cut through what can often feel like the kind of corporate treacle. And there's so many great companies that are brilliant at a ground level. And then people get quite frustrated as things kind of moving upwards becomes more difficult. There's a kind of paradox at play that we've talked about a few times in these conversations that most modern businesses will advocate creativity whilst silently, internally rewarding conformity. And once you realise there's, there's, there's one way that will verbally explain the game but there's another way that internally we play the game and it becomes very hard and you get to a certain level and you you realize how deeply ingrained like intergenerational like how old these systems are and how they were so originally built for the benefit of the white men who made them so lots of people find it difficult lots of different backgrounds find it difficult it seems that you served a very nice niche wave through that but what did you learn along the way about being a pirate within the navy being in large corporations and then still finding successful strategies to go against the tide? Gosh, you know, I think there are so many. And I think there's a level of almost conscious and subconscious ones that you pick up. That kind of blurring of those as you go, they get more and more kind of intertwined as the higher you go in in the corporate ladder, definitely. I would say the biggest learnings as I was moving through kind of mid-senior level to, to more senior level was really around the risk-taking element of things. I think 
I find it fascinating how nobody encourages or fosters that as much when you're fresh and very green to industry, any industry. It's so counterintuitive because you have to wait to get the seniority. You need to wait to get kind of the recognition or that badge of honor before you can actually make those waves. And actually, it's the total opposite. And I think that for me was something I would say was the subconscious learning that I kind of taught myself and hopefully some of my teams I worked with along the way was to kind of go through and I think for me because I had a very intense sporting background when I was going through pre-university and during university to some degree and I just find it almost I compared it to when you on the starting line of a race which I used to run at 800 meters but you're given a false start one false start and then the next one's where you get penalized right and I think that mentality I kind of said to everyone give yourself the one false false start Because if everyone was afraid to make a false start, no one would even turn up to the start line. But actually in the corporate world, we're still allowed into the boardrooms with that mentality of, oh, I don't want to make a false start, but I'll still sit down next to you and get out my post-its. And I think that definitely played a big part of it, especially when you come to the legacy systems, the undercurrents in global corporate companies, you know, Fortune 500, they're so strong with all the best will in the world, you see so many people who actually want to fight the tide. And actually, I remember somebody saying to me, you know, just don't take on the agency's problems or don't try and take on the organization's problems. I was like, yeah, you're right. And then I thought, wait, hold on a second. If not me, then who? (laughs) Because if everybody said that, oh, I don't want to take on this organization's problems, we wouldn't have, well, first of all, we wouldn't have CEOs. But second of all, the evolution of companies wouldn't be, it would be so, so much stagnation, it would be unreal. So I think that is another kind of thing that I just think when it comes to almost fighting a good fight, it's not even about going in and saying, I'm going to break the establishment, be against the corporation. I almost feel like it's just about iteration for me was the one thing that I also think is another learning is about kind of relentlessly iterating over time and just doing things a little bit better. It doesn't mean reinventing yourself or the wheel every single day because that would be exhausting. It literally just means kind of changing the way that you perceive something the way that you read something just to give it a little bit of a freshness into how you think and how you implement with yourself and also hopefully with your teams as well that was something that I was really keen on and I just think it also helps steepen the learning curve I think there's an element as well that I'm a really big fan of in terms of I tell people that I mentor as well don't worry about being the smartest person in the room there's always going to be someone smarter so just don't worry about it I think where I kind of focus on is like being the most curious in the room because I think curiosity is really the currency of competence like that's the main thing that I see and have kind of fostered it hopefully myself and will continue to in fact there's a great quote I was reading where it's basically saying I think it was it was Alvin Toffler so he was a philosopher turned futurologist which is what all the best futurologists usually are right and he's written a great book called Future Shock I don't know if you've read it but it's a really good read and Basically, he was saying that the illiterate of the 21st century are not going to be those that can't read or write. It'll be those that won't be able to unlearn, relearn and learn again. And I just think that's so poignant in terms of what it means to not just be a pirate and kind of navigate uncharted territory, but to also continue doing it. Some people I know will do it once, but to continuously do it and not have the resistance or the resilience inside you chipped away. That's the real mastery, in my opinion. I love that. Curiosity is the currency of competence. I'm going to steal that at some point. I'm sure I'm going to repeat it at some point and try and quote you. Yeah, that was exactly what stuck with me from the conversation we had where you said about not being worried about being the smartest person in the room and how difficult that can be to set aside your 
your ego and your professional identity and leave that at the door when you're going in. You're absolutely right. And it's come up in a lot of our education networks, that idea of it's how you learn rather than what you're learning. A lot of the time now, if you understand how you learn, you're going to be ahead and the ability to learn, unlearn, etc., is what's needed. And I think one of the things that you said on your website, which I again really love in terms of talking about AI and ethical AI and what it means was about educating people to ask the right questions rather than necessarily have the answers to it all. Perhaps we'll come on to that topic, but maybe just for the audience as well. I really want to get into this because it's a big, broad topic, the idea of AI in general and what it means, but then you layer ethical AI on the top of that. What does that mean? in your view? And how does that fit with the idea of approaching things with a curious mindset and having the questions? This is one of the biggest questions. and I know it keeps so many people up at night who are far more gifted technically AI than I am. But I think it's such an interesting area that honestly has been such an evolution from, again, pre-existing areas of the field. It hasn't just popped up out of nowhere. Essentially, ethical AIs evolved from what was known as machine morality and artificial intelligence. So that was the robotic concept that computer scientists were exploring, I think, in the late 1970s. So it goes back as far as then. And then it really looked at kind of aiming to address more of the ethical concerns that people have about design and application of AI and robotics at the time. And then machine ethics really just extended into several new theories on AI consciousness, rights, as the technology has matured and become that much more sophisticated. I mean, at the heart of it, as far as I see it, I think for me, ethics and the reason that also drove a lot of artificial intelligence, which was my take on humanizing artificial intelligence, because I think the way that, again, like how you say for people not in the field, I think curiosity and that ability to not kind of shame people who aren't specialists and technologists that don't live it day in, day out is super important to getting that kind of mainstream understanding of what it means to be ethically aware of artificial intelligence and its implications. And I think for me, I'm more inclined to champion that because that's been my journey. I think when people say, oh, it's AI so far over my head, I tell them I trained from not understanding anything about it to just reading a few articles to then doing a master's in machine learning and natural language processing. So if I can do it, anyone can do it. But more importantly, for me, it's more about the, I think, relationship between ethics and intentionality. I don't see a lot of people talk about that, but I think it's so incredibly prominent and integral rather to the success of ethics and ethical AI. I think you get a lot of people who are really strong about what it means for morality and those things I just mentioned, but you get very few people who focus on the intentionality aspect of, of ethical AI, which is the actual commitment to applying it, essentially. So when we talk about like tech for good, and that level is really about, by default, technology either being neither inherently good or bad. I think that's another angle that people don't really consider in its entirety. It's that element where it's not good, bad, or even neutral. It's actually important to develop technology that, with the intentionality that does good, so purposely setting out to improve the lives of potentially millions of people by addressing things like the biggest challenges we have, which are social, environmental, etc. I know the UN's actually set up their AI for Good initiative off the back of that ethos as well. But that's really where it stems from. Do you think there's a kind of challenge there, though? Because the notion that technology is neither good nor bad, but it's intentional, is also one that can be used around business. There's a paradox at play and that business has gone through this shareholder first mindset throughout the 80s, 90s. And that's, you know, 
Drucker's definition of business success and purpose. And then we went through a kind of meta version of what purpose might mean and having social and CSG goals. And now very much you'd be thinking about either kind of social equality, equality and climate. So you can see how business's purposes relates to the context. But what we can also see is that business purpose is informed by its first incarnations and its early incarnations, the birth of capitalism, were not good, not in for the advances of humanity, but it's taken the advance of humanity to be able to retrospectively look back at that. And I know lots of your work has focused on the inherent biases of people programming the technology. And so if the technology is the preserve of enclaves like Silicon Valley and others, then it will end up being the reproduction and preservation of a system which is inherently not good for humanity. If one of the big rules that needed breaking is business as usual, preserve of capitalism that profits few at the expense of the many business models that continue to perpetuate that, is there not an issue that the majority of technology emerges from those places and by calling it inherently neutral, it's subconsciously supporting a system that is not neutral but problematic? It's interesting to hear you come at it from that angle as well. And I think absolutely there is always that layer where that margin of kind of almost misinterpretation but obviously error within those systems can kind of be perpetuated I think for me it really is going down that track of yes it is neutral but to a point where essentially I think the way that is baked in is more around the perspective of AI not being dangerous but actually human bias being more of the key danger the one thing that I like to try and say to people is that essentially AI just holds a mirror up to humanity and we have to just ensure that it shows our best face back and reflected into it because I think it's that accountability again as well which I'm sure you both have heard thrown around the level of actually it's never an algorithm's fault there is always the human through intervention through coding that will have have that accountability placed on them and this is where it becomes really difficult and to be honest it's still a massive gray area in terms of legislation and also in the prosecution phase if something fails and a system fails like we've seen in the media through racist tweets through autonomous vehicles causing fatalities where does the blame lie and no one's fully cracked it yet I think just to put it into context like most governments are adopting a wait and see approach if we actually talk a little bit more around the legislation now I think the European Union's the most active in proposing new rules and regulations with existing or proposed rules in seven out of like nine categories, which go across AI from like transparency, fairness, bias, like those types of things. And then we've got like a whole other host of different countries who are talking about things like what we call laws, LAWS, which is lethal autonomous weapon systems. And only one country, which is Belgium, has actually passed legislation to prevent the use of laws at the moment. So there's a massive dichotomy in terms of how people are tackling not just AI, but the actual different aspects of it as well. So use a sports analogy, the way you'd want it to move is in like a rugby line, right? But actually, at the minute, we're all just moving at very different paces, dependent on what the government is, and also what the geography of each country is. You'd think that the lawmaking centre of Europe would come up with a better acronym, laws, just as an interest <laughs> It was an interesting side note. Sorry, I'd love to come back to you on so much in there, but I'll go back to you, Alex. I will definitely come back to the, um, the sort of high-level regulation aspect. I'm really interested that, about how it plays out on a political level. But just given that you work with brands and companies in terms of implementing some technologies and having that discussion, maybe on a more micro level with individuals or leaders, how could you take a more ethical approach just based on like day-to-day working practices? You're about to implement some new technologies. 
maybe some of it is machine learning based. Like, you know, even for example, when I think about the first example of machine learning I ever think of is like checkouts in Sainsbury's where you're speaking to a machine suddenly. And I've had a discussion with a really smart group about that and the implications on our behavior and how we receive working with a machine instead of working with a human being in terms of managing our shopping. And there are all kinds of moral questions and how that affects your behavior towards other humans and Yeah, as a starting point, as a person who specialises in this, how do you advise people to approach it ethically? There's never, I think, going to be a a kind of neat bow that we can tie around a solution or kind of an education kit. Really, it is about becoming educated on the conversation. And I think also using the proximity that people do or don't have to the technology as your advantage and as your superpower in many ways. I think there's a lot of perception, mainly because of how people see knowledge versus curiosity as being something like, I don't know enough about it to join the conversation. And actually, I think once people step outside of that limiting mindset a little bit more, like it actually will foster a lot more growth in terms of the interdisciplinariness, which I actually heard you talk about in your bonus episode um, the other week. That kind of cross-pollination of ideas, diversity of thought, it's so key to any ethics, really, like any conversation in general, even just beyond AI, like that's always necessary, but particularly for something as important as this, bringing together that. And I think Manuel Kant, he's a deontologist, and he basically proposed this really powerful idea that when faced with an ethical choice, we should universalize our thinking. And he basically suggested that we should imagine whether our our actions would be acceptable as a universal law of behavior. So what if everybody did what I'm about to do? What if everybody drove this autonomous vehicle this way or like saw things through this computer vision monitoring system that now monitors pedestrians as well as criminals this way? And this simplified version of Kant's most important theory is really an invaluable like ethical prompt for technologists. But that's more of an academic thing, so I won't go too far into it. I think from a more accessible lens, it really is about kind of furthering those conversations. And I know there's a lot of these boards that are being set up, a lot of these kind of steering committees, which is a great place to start. But again, it's that gap between intention to set up ethical awareness, but actually versus the actual execution of it that really needs to be married in a much more successful way. There's also a lot of kind of technical tools you can do as well. There's a day on have a command line checklist. So what that actually means is essentially can help you embedded actually the lines of each of your code different elements of kind of ethical considerations so that actually the coders and developers seeding that in at that kind of grassroots level in ways that kind of have been previously disconnected because that's another difficult thing about AI is it builds on so many different pockets of an organization from developers project management senior management and the levels of AI and, and kind of understanding versus the actual objectives massively differ so the coding team their kpis a lot of the time is to reduce loss and also errors basically but also achieve the highest performance possible so what we know is percentage of accuracy in a model whereas more senior leaders their goal will just be on like customer satisfaction more of a broader lens so it's actually about how do we align those so that we're considering the implications of what are being built from the very beginning and not when it actually goes wrong because then it's just very retrospective. So those are kind of a few of the things that I really encourage people to do. Also, another small life hack that I've encouraged is around understanding the different types of terminology. 
around the different codes of ethics. So we have so many different codes of ethics. I think codes of ethics and legislation are very different, obviously. So legislation, we had about 74 different papers published from 2017 to 2020. If anyone wants to win a pub quiz with that stat, that's yours. But more importantly, codes of conduct are non-legally binding. So this is where we're seeing a lot of that gap between the kind of intention to deliver ethical AI versus the actual commitment to ensuring it at the very end point, because we get a lot of instances where people know that maybe it's not fully ethical or that it's not meeting the full parameters, but they kind of say, well, it's okay because we've thought about it and it's not quite fully achievable, but here we go. So codes of conduct in that way, I think, are becoming something that it's really useful to take a look. And if you look at the differences between like Google's and Facebook's, the way that they define a lot of the terminologies that we have around two different types. So those being fairness and privacy, there's about 25 different definitions for fairness in data science, which not a lot of people know. And there is not too much consensus at all between them, as you can obviously tell from that. So what we see is that Privacy is something that actually a lot of people know is an issue, but has actually become more standardized in the last few years than fairness. So we call it in the field, it's called differential privacy is the definition that the community has settled on. So that's the ability to kind of share and collect personal and behavioral data needed for AI systems to train on, but also preserving the privacy of those whose data it belongs to. Whereas fairness is a lot more arbitrary. So algorithmic fairness compared to algorithmic privacy is actually a much harder problem to solve. I was speaking to someone on this the other day and and we were actually saying the study of fairness is actually where the study of privacy was like 15 years ago. There's even lag time between these different elements that are baked into documentation that we're supposed to be going off. And I think that's what makes it really difficult in terms of like what I mentioned earlier, like universalizing our thinking and kind of creating a consensus because... There's so much kind of room for misinterpretation and gray area between the literature that currently exists. So it's kind of like educating yourself on those areas is is also really important. Do you think, Jess, then, with so much scope and so much opportunity, do you think the world of artificial intelligence is fully living up to its potential to help us break the rules that seem to be those that cause us the greatest problems? Because the endemic difficulties that humanity faces, right, you know, climate crisis, can't really see a way out of that. And that's kind of relying on technologies that haven't been invented. Equality in systems, it's still over 200 years predicted until we'll find ourselves on equal wages. There's huge things that current systems don't have any answer to, and yet those systems look like they're going to prevail. And there are few opportunities for a systems upgrade as exciting as this technology that could be to come in. However, if it remains the kind of intentional, you know, and ethical externality of the way business is done now, then this slightly disappointing repeat could play out as it normally does. You know, you'll see some great advances last year in the conversation around because of Black Lives Matter, you saw certain police institutions defunded. But then what typically happens in human societies is that those shifts are quietly replicated behind the scenes and the order continues. And and it kind of feels like that's the danger here, you know, that what we'll see is AI adapted for huge advances that will benefit health, but primarily to big pharma or, you know, will fundamentally shift retail and consumerism, but it won't end retail or consumerism. And 
what is the chance, do we think, like perhaps it sits outside the ethical debate, because in a way it sounds like the ethical debate is a way to harness AI for the benefit of the status quo. I've got like images of 1980s hacker movies in my head, you know, people bringing down systems, you know. So this doesn't really feel like it's the crypto scene either. That feels a little bit, you know, self-obsessed. Like where are the kind of radical outliers who are planning to, you know, help reprogram the world and perhaps fix these massive challenges that we face, not just automate some of the decisions that we're going to make? I'm being deliberately, sorry, provocative and perhaps unfair. No, you're not the first one to go down that route, Sam, nor will you be the last, because I think it's so valid as well, because I think it's also the lens at which we get fed a lot of the news and also developments in AI. A lot of AI came through private labs, which also is obviously funded by corporations and then also makes the end goal of AI not as altruistic as, say, the other startups in the space. I think from my perspective, we see it a lot more in the obviously smaller AI startup SME level, where we're getting a lot of great advancement and building of these solutions that are far more engaged and moving the needle for good than anything else. We see that really around like things like assistive technology and agricultural technology, also like sustainable tech is massively taking off, obviously like environmental, social goals, like the ESG conversation is massive in the space right now. And and actually AI is a common theme that keeps on coming up day in, day out. So it is there. It's a question of actually, how do we surface it better? I think, because I'm not as concerned about it not being there, because I think it's more about the kind of disproportionate access that we have to these companies who are really doing the good work, being overshadowed by those that, to be honest, just have scale of economies and funding behind them who get the majority of the spotlight. In fact, like one of the ones that I was thinking about was actually founded by my sister. She's doing some great work at the minute, which I will give her a shout out on. But I think it, theirs is called Pull to Refresh. And essentially, they're competing in the Elon Musk X Prize which I don't know if you know, is giving out about 100 million to a number of any startups that can basically solve carbon sequestration. So reducing CO2 emissions. And they're looking at using AI with a mixture of kelp farming, because kelp is a carbon sink, can basically also remove between like 20 to 30 times more CO2 than trees. Through this conversation that I keep having with her, I've learned a lot more than I probably should about kelp. But essentially, what it does tell us is that they're doing incredible work that will really kind of change the way that we approach sustainability and carbon capture. But that will never really be known in a way that kind of Twitter's racist tweeting chatbot will be because it's just not surfaced the correct way to us. So I think stuff like that for me gives me definitely so much hope the industry will be changing. It's so interesting when you highlight examples like that that have so much potential And I kind of want to come back to ask you whether you, on balance, feel generally hopeful and optimistic or feel that the risks are greater than the potential. But the bigger question I've always had in mind when it comes to technology, and we've touched on it a little bit in terms of, you know, regulators creating laws that vary wildly and you get however many different definitions of privacy and fairness. And some of that just comes down to semantics. The idea being that there's always a group of people over here deciding things or creating something. The majority of the population globally are then handed something that they've had no say in creating or defining in any way. And I think I feel that really acutely from being that generation that suddenly got handed Facebook, like, this is your new tool to communicate with your fellow humans. 
without really a sense of understanding how it would affect our behavior. We know, you know, from that documentary, the, what was it called? I can't remember now off the top of my head, where it explains how algorithms can actually change your behavior the more you interact with platforms and devices. And that everyone was terrified and then deleted everything after. But it felt like I didn't understand enough at the time to be able to make a decision about whether I should use this or should not use it. And obviously, we, we tend to just follow each other. So on the one level, you've got policy and government regulating. On the other hand, you've got individuals making decisions within their family units or their businesses. Because I'm so interested in the role of democracy and deliberative democracy in general. And having tried to also run sessions like this on big topics like the role of AI, like how we deal with climate change. Is there a way of, in theory, social media and the algorithm, the role of the algorithms is to create wider communication and to democratise our ability to have a voice? And yet it seems to be failing because we're in these bubbles where we only hear either bad stuff or good stuff. And is there a way to create something that enables us to be able to design and define how we use technology together, or at least at a more diverse public level rather than in these bubbles or in these tech communities? It's so interesting because I think the way that we kind of perceive democratization like that is kind of the crux of kind of unlocking success for ethical AI and and just like the future of AI, I think. I think a lot of it also is around, again, that kind of like access to information. So in the community at a technical level in terms of like the developers open source, so the ability to share code and different libraries of code, as we call them, has been a massive way to democratize some AI. So an example of that is like when you build what we call like neural networks that make up machine learning models, that in itself is reliant on a training set. So not only do these open source libraries make it possible to share things like training sets, but also code for models, which then mean that other people who may not have the team resource, but also the knowledge to understand the intricacies of that can replicate hopefully more ethical models. And we kind of get that templated scalability of the right type of machine learning is one way that I kind of see that as being something that will continue to help further the industry and democratize not just the knowledge, but the actual building of fair AI. I think on the other side of that as well, it's really around opening up those conversations. And I think we are getting more of the right people talking about it. But as far as I'm concerned, I think even in itself, that will never exhaust the conversations that we have around AI. I think there's there's always room to have more. Something that I was talking to someone about was around these conferences back in the day when in-person conferences were a thing and how there was different tracks to conferences. So you have obviously like the business track, like the marketing track. And then now we see more ethical tracks within conferences emerging. We're talking about this idea that actually, hopefully one day we won't even need to have an ethical track because every kind of conversation around it will already have ethics embedded within the content it won't need to be something that's heralded as a separate format but obviously that's not to say that to discourage what's being the effort is being made already i think any effort that's being made is great and i don't ever think anyone should feel like it's not good enough but i do think there is kind of a lot more room for that growth to be at the point where we're more comfortable talking about and delivering ethical solutions i think again it also goes back to the idea that it's not just on the shoulders of technologists or journalists to be asking these questions and raising the right questions. I think sometimes that element is displaced onto these people as being the ones that should kind of champion 
this conversation and the discourse to continue properly. It's actually everybody's responsibility because of the the nature of AI impacting everybody's lives. I think, again, that's where it comes to, to the specialist versus journalist conversation. There are two kind of different sides of the coin, but at the same time, we're all influenced by it from the kind of navigation that we have walking down the street to, you know, asking Siri what the weather's going to be later on. People, whether they know it or they don't, it's it's massively impacted already our everyday. So to not have an understanding of that is, I think, is something that can't be acceptable moving forward. I really want to go back to kelp and technology merging with nature. But I don't know, I'm going to try and squeeze in two questions and see if Alex lets me get away with it. Or maybe I'll come back to that. I think the work that you've done is remarkable. I really do. And as soon as I saw your site, and and even just your wording that you've curated these stories in an industry that's like so full of ego and a desire to blind people with science, knowing that people are already, you know, completely convinced of AI, mainly through scary movies. And you know, Skynet, it must be like most people's definition of it still. Well, I'd love to know which movie you think probably does it best. Nonetheless, <laughs> something you said at the beginning was reminding me of that old line that the world isn't evil because of bad people, it's because of good people who do nothing. And then you came back to intentionality, which I still feel let all off the hook a bit too much. And all, we run the risk of, you know, intentional algorithms supporting capitalism at the exact moment that we really need to rethink to consumerist societies. But this final point, I really, really agree with. And I think it's the thing that you're doing so brilliantly, making this complex and scary topic really understandable, being very democratic about it, making a deliberate effort to break it down and do it really beautifully. And I think that last point is an excellent one because we all have to become accountable for the technology that we're using. And it's a surprise when you realise how much of your life is driven by AI and how much we take it for granted and how much we, we use it. So I'd love to know in this mission that you're doing so well of bringing AI to a more open conversation, getting people to take accountability for the technology that's taking place around in their lives and the transaction that they're having with it in terms of their data and and then the services they're taking. How does that go down? Because I imagine that's quite, there's a bit of a sticking point for lots of people in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those things as well, where it's like accountability really is in the eye of the beholder. What is satisfactory accountability to me being in that driver's seat in most instances is so different to what it is for somebody else. And that will forever be, you know, what makes us so incredibly special and unique as humans. Great. But also is why we're at the point we're at, because it is that kind of delineation between those different mentalities that will just be an issue. And I think cracking that code is key, really, because I think I'm an optimist at heart, and otherwise artificial wouldn't be alive. But I think for the most part, it's that everybody wants to be accountable at some point. I never meet anybody who says, you know, I just don't care about the future, about what happens to me. Like everybody has some tie to wanting to do a little bit on their part, whether that's just kind of understanding it a little bit better. Nobody says like, I just don't care about AI. I haven't heard that yet. So I think for me, it's about seeing how again, we can kind of just embed that accountability at different levels. And I think also kind of just destigmatize it as well, because I think people also assume that this level of accountability means that, you know, you need to be ready to build AI yourself. And I'm like, you can be accountable without having built any artificial intelligence, having coded. And again, that element of kind of just, even though you haven't built it yourself, you do need to understand how it works. I think somebody put it best when they were like, oh, we drive a car, but we don't necessarily need to understand how it works under the hood. I was like, yeah, that might be fine for a car. But I was like, a car doesn't govern every area in the same way that AI does. And it's just interesting to hear how people kind of rationalize that again in the accountability sense. 
when we think about like the education piece around it, for me, that's why I've chosen to make it more accessible. And I think also to your point around like the intentionality element, I think there's almost a layer and maybe because it's in my brain already, I, I don't kind of service it enough. But I think for me, it's intentionality times altruism that is really like at the heart of that eth- ethics kind of debate. Because I think altruistic AI, that for me is, is the way that we fight kind of systems that are just geared towards like capitalist goals, like mentality of kind of taking it in a route that just doesn't serve the society or the environment in the way that it needs to, to be sustainable. But that comes back to, again, the kind of the coding and, and the, the education that sits behind the building blocks of it. I think for me, human knowledge and understanding is one of the most undervalued resources that we have. And that's something that is so fundamental to successful ethical AI as well. That reminds me of a conversation I was having recently regarding that, that idea of accountability of information. I was having it with my friend's dad, who was very insistent that actually my generation or our younger people don't understand how a car works or don't understand how a house is plumbed or the electric works. And goes, what if everything breaks down and you don't know how to fix the, the water in the house or turn it on? And I said, it's true, like I'm a little bit more clued up these days, but... I have not felt that that was something I ought to understand or that I have accountability for because predominantly I can call somebody within five minutes and they'll come and, and be better at it than I am and they can come and, and fix my whatever I've got going on. And I said, well, you don't really understand how a lot of the technology platforms I'm using work. Like, you know, it takes five hours to set up an email account for you, that sort of thing. I was being a bit facetious with him, but, you know, the level of understanding and definitions of accountability and what is good enough is so critical and that's where I always come back to the idea of like you said needing more conversation and needing to democratize the conversation and where are the spaces to have that and how can we insert that whether it's in school settings I would advocate and I do quite often in our workshops to to teams that you should create spaces agendaless meetings for your team to talk about the big stuff like whether it's climate whether it's AI the stuff that's going to affect everyone and figure out if you're on the same page at all. What is everybody reading about this? What are your perceptions? Because there are such big gaps in our perceptions. Another thing I was just thinking of while you were talking was when we're going on about the language and the storytelling element of how you translate this stuff. And you mentioned, you know, the idea of neural networks, and that's how you use the idea that you're actually trying to mimic a brain. Oddly enough, we're talking about machine learning, but we've got to shift to thinking in a more holistic way. And the problem is always these silos that we've created. And if we looked at it all more as an ecosystem rather than um, separate elements, we would have a much better shot at having those aligned viewpoints on the ethics of it all. I think that you're completely right on that. And that is kind of one of the crooks of the problems that we have. I think another one for me is around like the black box nature aspect of AI that I'm sure you'll have heard of as well. I think that's something that when we talk about, you know, all of those things like democratizing and and really kind of creating more space that is almost the complete antithesis of that so black box ai is that essence of where we have systems that are not explainable again explainable is another term that kind of comes alongside fairness and privacy so explainable ai is that when we know the inner workings of why the system is doing what it's doing and that that has been considered prior to launching a system so we we fully know how something works the way it does and that rationale is in place And there's a sense that a lot of tools and systems that are machine learning enabled should not be black box, because if we do not understand the core components of what make them tick, literally, then they should not be allowed into society, because it just creates 
a massive margin of error. And I think that in itself and the reasons for that are also essentially because a lot of companies don't want to reveal their IP. So because their intellectual property could be revealed by giving more information about algorithms, it, it becomes a massive tension between democratizing AI and then just delivering all of your trade secrets to the marketplace, which I think is an incredible challenge that we have at present. I also think that there's that element as well where to circle back to what you were asking earlier, Sam, around the accountability part, we're actually getting to a point where what I mentioned earlier, accuracy of an of a machine learning model, which is like 100% is obviously the holy grail and actually anything above like 85 is considered quite robust. But I remember Andrew Ung, who's the former chief data scientist at Baidu, said, you know, the difference between like 95% and 100% is the difference between using something once a month or using it every day. So it's actually incredibly important to ascertain that. And more importantly, we're actually at a point where there's conversation across the community around, do we have an ethics percentage? So the same way we have 97% accuracy, do we have 97% ethical models? So to say that it's 97% ethical means that there's 3% of it that doesn't comply with the ethics parameters and procedures. And I think that's an incredibly fascinating kind of area that we're moving towards in terms of quantification of ethics. Again, for me, that's where I kind of see my intentionality of it coming a little bit more to fruition successfully, but it's still very much nascent stages for that one, but I just thought it's worth kind of calling out. That's fascinating. You were shouting out your sister on a form of social media. It was just great work and very impressive sisters. And I have a friend who's been going on to me about kelp for a while and suddenly see it all come round. The reason it strikes a chord with me is it seems that in many technologies, we're arriving at the unsurprising conclusion that many of the answers are in nature anyway. And we've spent a long time trying to science the nature out of technology and business systems a lot. There's lots of work around the semantics of controlling nature, overcoming nature and various things and re- replicating and synthesizing nature. And we've done it in nutritional sciences or climate sciences and across the board. We're beginning to see and both understand all the way through to complexity science, these natural patterns hold many answers that we didn't necessarily realize it's the science fiction writer's three laws it's asimov or arthur c Clarke, and no sufficient technology should be indistinguishable from magic yeah i love that one oh that's so good i've never heard that yeah no no sufficiently developed technology should be indistinguishable from magic and i've always been charmed by it but i kind of think it perpetuates the problem because if i think of AI like magic then therefore i don't understand it and it's got this shady other side that's going to scare me right so you know broadly defining magic and perhaps there's an upgrade or a next evolution of no suitably tech, advanced technology should be indistinguishable from nature because the technologies and patterns that we're seeing play out, be it where we've arrived to in neuroscience to, you know, thousands of year old Buddhist wisdom, like we keep arriving at the same place. And I wonder if that's both the fear that sits behind our notion truly of AI, that there is something deeply natural, or as, we, as we've seen with megacities, you know, they've replicated the exact communications and flow systems within the brain. We we will repeat patterns in nature just as nature always does. Do you think that's a possibility that AI is, is us you know, recreating aspects of nature and that true achieving the potential of AI will look more like nature than magic? You know, I think that's so lovely to hear that. Again, you're right. I also have that similar grapple with that Arthur C. Clarke quote because it is so lovely and I think articulated so nicely, but kind of shows that shady side as well. So to hear it relate back to nature, I just think is really interesting but also probably the most more accurate manifestation that it probably will take um i think given the way that 
it's so I think that also that that for me is why I was so kind of entranced with AI in the beginning as well was with that kind of connection that it does have with fragments of us that are just so not about technology at all it purely is about the human anatomy biology and nature as opposed to anything else I always say to people the more technical things get actually the more human they should become as opposed to the a lot of people perceive it the other way is as soon as things get technical they're like that's it we need to shed the humanity in this it's all about becoming academic becoming rigorous in our technicality around this concept and that's just not true so I think you know that that element of life imitating art I think it's probably algorithm imitating nature with how this should move forward more successfully because for me that's also where we see a lot more gain of that altruistic side of AI as well if we think about like the kelp side of things I think for me there's a lot around AI being able to detect natural disasters weather patterns like all of these things that are so kind of just organic in terms of how we exist on the earth, but just fueled by technology as opposed to the other way around is probably the best way forward as well. It's a really interesting one. I I really like that idea actually of, of that quote, linking back to nature in that way. It's nice. But this has been so fascinating. I'm like, it's been the quickest hour to be fair. I'd like, for me, I would say the hardest part about AI is getting me to shut up about it. So I love having a good chat, especially in the middle of the workday. Always nice. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Jess. Love to me. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realize that the way things are is not the way they have to be and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Pirate on Instagram or Twitter, or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.